Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here as always with my friend and comrade Derek Davison. And before we get into news, just some light housekeeping, just a touch of housekeeping. Um, first of all, if you haven't yet, please like and subscribe to us, particularly review us on the Apple Podcast app. That actually really helps. Um, somehow in the Sam Bankman Fried-esque way that they do podcast rankings, um, getting reviewed on Apple really helps. So if you can, do that uh and also he's free to be third mike now right yeah oh god yeah i didn't even think about that we have so many so many people have applied Got a lot of options liz truss boris johnson (laughs) other people from the united kingdom but yeah so if you if you could do that that would be great and also just to let everyone know uh me and matt chrisman friend of the pod have uh started a second season of hinge points over on chapo trap house so check that out derek you have anything to say or you just you're just in the news all day you can't even think about business or anything like that you're you're just like a news monster yeah, sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> okay, let's start. So, Derek, tell us about the G20. Uh, so, the G20 uh, got together in Bali this week, uh, Tuesday and Wednesday, for their uh, big annual summit. Uh, the highlight of the event actually took place prior to its beginning on Monday when uh, good friend Joe Biden and uh, other good friend of the pod, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the presidents of the United States and China, respectively, met for the first time face-to-face since Biden became president. Uh, she famously has been has only just started going on trips abroad. He, he locked himself down in China during COVID uh, exclusively, so he's only just started kind of getting back out there. You know, any summit between the United States president and the, the president of China is going to be a big deal. Uh, this one doesn't seem to have really accomplished all that much uh, but really just getting them in a room and talking is is uh, probably the key I guess uh, at this point uh, they did talk about Taiwan they talked uh, Biden says he pressed Xi on human rights issues the Taiwan issue I mean you know they just talk past each other as you would expect one tangible thing that did come out of the their meeting is that she apparently agreed to resume climate talks uh, between uh, the two countries. Those had been suspended. Beijing suspended them uh, after Nancy Pelosi, you may remember, visited Taiwan a couple of months ago. So that's definitely a positive development. Uh, I wouldn't too mu- put too much stock in their ability to solve all our problems. But uh, uh, always, uh, as I say, better to talk than, than not to talk. Uh, the, the G20 itself was dominated by uh, mostly discussions of the, the war in Ukraine, uh, there was a little bit of uh, climate talk, as as people likely know, the COP27 UN climate summit is also going on right now uh, in Egypt. So there was sort of an attaboy message from the G20 uh, in their final communique or their final uh, leadership declaration or whatever it was called. It wasn't a communique. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. Um, they, they agreed to, uh, they made a commitment to try to maintain the Paris Agreement from 2015's cap on global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius. Uh, the chances of humanity actually achieving that 
goal and limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius uh, are about the same as the chances of me being signed to quarterback uh, an NFL team. Uh, so, wait, Derek, what about effective altruism? Have you heard about well, this exciting I have, I have new heard philosophy? About that. Yeah, yeah yes. that's that. Don't don't, don't go don't past that. Hell. <laughs> And I, I, I know we put all of our investments in FTX. How are they doing these days? Uh, as far as I know, they're doing fine. I haven't checked in, in a few months, <laughs> Good. but um, Derek is in control of the money, folks. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, you know, I, I wanted to. That guy seems like he knows what he's doing. So, uh, you know, I wanted to. Wanted to. I trust him. him. I see yeah, him. I, I trust him. Seems like a trustworthy guy. As I say, the other uh, major issue was, of course, discussion of the war in Ukraine, and this is why there was no the traditional kind of joint official statement was replaced by something a little more watered down um, because there was no agreement uh, within the G20 about what to say about Ukraine. This is not surprising given that Russia is one of the G20 member states uh, and obviously has a uh, somewhat different view of that conflict than many of its other members. Uh, so they put out what was what they termed a leader's declaration instead of a, a communique uh, that said that most members strongly condemned the war in Ukraine. I don't know what most means or how many that uh, of the G20 uh, that means, I guess, more than 10, uh, less than 20. Um, and that was that was pretty much it. So, uh, you know, another great year of uh, not really accomplishing anything, although just getting all these guys uh, in a room together um, and having them talk to each other means they can't be doing any harm to anybody else. So, uh, it's always at least a nice little respite for the rest of the world, I think. Thanks, Derek. So why don't we move now to the NIC report on UAE influence peddling? So the, Nas the U.S. National Intelligence Council has done a report, the Washington Post reported on it on Saturday, um, that lays out an extensive effort by the United Arab Emirates to influence U.S. politics. Um, it's, a, it's a somewhat surprising report the, the intelligence community doesn't usually um, study influence operations that affect U.S. domestic politics, uh, and it certainly doesn't discuss them or, or write reports on them when they involve uh, governments that are deemed by established Washington establishment in Washington to be friendly, like the UAE. So this is a, a, a pretty unique document to have come out. Um, a lot of the issue, or a lot of the the Influence operations seems to be of the legal variety, if you know, a bit dodgy and and somewhat maybe unethical. Uh, Eli Clifton and Ben Freeman at Responsible Statecraft dug into this a little bit further. They're doing a, a brief for the the Quincy Institute on this very subject. Um, there's a lot of you know the the UAE's dropped I think 154 million dollars on lobbying firms since 2016. A number of those lobbying firms then turn around and donate. Uh, to uh, candidates for Congress, which is you know a little little gray area, a little shady. Uh, they've also dumped vastly more than that on think tanks and universities. Um, you know they'll say they're just supporting the work at these places, but uh, there's obviously some uh, plenty of reason to think that they're they're getting uh, products in return for their money. Uh, some of the, what was outlined in the report seems to verge on espionage, like outright espionage. Uh, a lot of it lies in what I would say is a gray area, legal gray area, uh, because the U.S. government generally doesn't. Uh, enforce the laws that it has regarding foreign influence peddling, and it, it refuses to strengthen them, uh, which it probably should. 
so it, it's it's an interesting report. I would recommend people uh, check out the the Washington Post again from Saturday, uh, and and give it a give it a look. Thank you, Derek. Uh, let's talk a bit about what's been going on in Ethiopia. And I would also point people um, who are interested in our coverage of sub-Saharan Africa um, and the Horn of Africa to check out our episode this week with um, Samar al-Balushi on the uh, topic. Uh, so there's actually good news from Ethiopia, which is um, rare, I guess, uh, at least with respect to the the war in Tigray, the uh, recently ended, hopefully, war in Tigray. Uh, the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front uh, negotiated all last week in Kenya. They they wound up staying longer than they had planned to, to try and put some meat on the bones of the peace agreement that they ironed out earlier this month. Uh, the The big development there was they they finally agreed to begin opening up Tigray for humanitarian relief uh, to immediately, this was the agreement they reached on Saturday, uh, sort of immediately bring start bringing humanitarian aid, not just to Tigray, but to uh, parts of neighboring regions, Afar and Amhara, that have been affected by the war. Uh, and uh, sure enough, uh, the Red Cross reported Tuesday that it had gotten a convoy of uh, mostly medical aid trucks into Makella, the capital of Tigray, uh, that arrived on Tuesday. The UN World Food Program uh, said on Wednesday that it had uh, gotten a convoy of food aid into Tigray. I don't know uh, if that's arrived at Makella yet or not. Uh, and the Red Cross also on Wednesday said it had uh, started airlifting aid uh, to northern Tigray, to the city of Shira, which is the, the, the main city in that part of the region. Northern Tigray has been especially hard hit by the fighting, and it's uh, much more remote, difficult, more difficult to reach uh, than Mikela. So these are all positive things. Uh, now, there is one drag here on the, the peace process, which is the status of the region that is currently known as Western Tigray, historically uh, known as Wolkite. Uh, this is a region that has been disputed by the Tigray and Amhara for decades, really. There's a Tigray, Tigrayan claim on the region that goes all the way back to the 19th century, and then it was part of Amhara for uh, many decades. The TPLF, when it was the dominant force in Ethiopian national politics, annexed the region into Tigray uh, in 1991. Um, so there's been an ongoing back and forth. The region is currently occupied by Amhara, regional security forces. They moved in during the war and they have uh, occupied the territory. Abi Ahmed, the prime minister of Ethiopia, uh, told uh, parla uh, parliament on Tuesday, or at least a group of, of parliamentarians on Tuesday, uh, that he envisions settling the status, the final status of this region in some sort of, um, well, he, he didn't specify, but he said it will be done according to the constitution. So it's clearly not um, you know, gonna it, it wasn't talked about in the peace deal, so this is clearly something they're going to have to work out uh, to come. It could, it, there could be. I think he he mentioned the possibility of a referendum, which opens up a lot of questions about who would be allowed to vote in this referendum. Would Tigray, who have been uh, displaced by the the war and the Amhara occupation, be allowed to come back and vote? Would Amhara, who trace their kind of ancestral uh, homes to this region, but uh, you know, left after 1991, would they be allowed to to come back and stake a claim and vote? Uh, lots to be uh, lots to consider here, and, and whichever way it goes, the other 
party is is not going to be uh, terribly pleased. So uh, something to watch out for. Thanks, Derek. Uh, let's talk now about, uh, briefly at least, about the bombing of Istanbul that happened last week. Just what happened, literally? Uh, yes. So this was um, on Monday. Uh, the uh, There was a bombing uh, in Istanbul on Istiklal Street, uh, which is uh, one of the busiest... Um, or sorry, on Sunday, excuse me. Uh, uh, one of the busiest kind of pedestrian areas in Istanbul. Uh, at least six people were killed. Over 80 were wounded. Uh, Turkish authorities have blamed uh, the Kurdistan Workers' Party or PKK, uh, which they they tend to do almost reflexively uh, in situations like this. They've allowed for the possibility that it was Islamic State, but uh, they have arrested a number of people. They started with a Syrian woman, uh, on Monday, and they've uh, arrested several other people since then. Uh, and, you know, they, they do seem to be focusing on the PKK and its Syrian affiliates, the YPG, uh, or the Syrian Democratic Forces, which is, uh, of course, the U.S. proxy in eastern Syria and is uh, basically the YPG plus a few other groups, uh, has close ties to the PKK. So, uh, you know, the Turks are... Uh, Circling that issue, they, they, uh, their interior minister, Suleiman Soylu, um, lashed out at the U.S. And, and sort of tacitly blamed the U.S. for this, this bombing. And that's because the U.S. and the SDF are, um, you know, still quite close. And, and that, that sticks, that, that's been an irritation for Turkey, uh, for quite some time now. So, um, you know, just, uh, that, that's all I really have. I, I, there hasn't been any, uh, retaliation, as far as I know, from the Turks or any kind of, um, you know, uh, talk of, of going after the PKK. I mean, they do that regularly anyway. Uh, so I think that's that's where things stand. There was the bombing and it's, um, you know, the, the aftermath is still being worked out. Thank you, Derek. Uh, now let's talk about Israel and its response to the Abu Ekla uh, investigation. So, yeah, people may recall that Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla was killed uh, probably by Israeli security forces in Jenin in the West Bank uh, back in May. Uh, she was covering an Israeli Defense Forces raid in that city. She was, you know, decked out in the uh, very prominent press kit, uh, was shot anyway, uh, killed. Uh, several investigations after the uh, IDF initially said, well, maybe she was shot by the Palestinians. You don't know about by, by Palestinian gunmen. Uh, several investigations from uh, sources that are not prone to kind of uh, anti-Israel uh, discourse like the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, concluded that she must have been killed by an Israeli soldier. Uh, CNN, another uh, you know, I would say uh, not really anti-Israel outlet concluded that she was probably deliberately targeted uh, by an Israeli soldier after conducting its own investigation. Uh, the IDF then later did an internal investigation, which said uh, acknowledged a high possibility uh, that she was killed by a, an IDF soldier, uh, but refused to do a criminal investigation. Said surely this was you know accidental, so uh, no harm, no foul. Uh, the Justice Department has now opened its own criminal investigation into Abu Akhla's killing. Uh, we know this because Benny Gantz, who is the outgoing defense minister of Israel, angrily talked about it on Monday and insisted that the Israeli government will not cooperate with, with any such investigation. Uh, Yair Lapid, who's the outgoing prime minister, reemphasized that Israel's not going to participate 
uh, not going to cooperate in this probe. Uh, and so that's where things stand. Uh, I, I'm excited for, you know, when we send Israel another, you know, 3.5 billion or whatever in military aid next year, uh, given, given all the cooperation they've given in this, uh, this case. Well, naturally, of course. Yeah. So why don't we move on uh, to our final topics, which which might be a, a little bit interesting. <laughs> At least I hope everything's interesting, actually, folks. Uh, but but th- Derek, this has been a news week of fake news. First, there was the Iran news, and then there was the the missile news. So could you maybe just briefly talk about what people said about Iran um, and it's totally made up and, and what you think that might reflect about the way the U.S. media thinks about these things, and then we could talk about uh, the Ukraine-Russia-Poland missile fiasco. The I mean, the Iran thing was so <laughs> stupid. I barely like even even gave it any consideration. But it, you're right. Um, there was a report, I think, in Newsweek, which you know used to be a credible outlet, but I would say probably not these days. Uh, to the effect that the Iranian government had sentenced 15,000 people to execution uh, for participating in the protests uh, that started with the death of Masa Amini back in September while she was in the custody of Iranian morality police. Uh, This is, you know, so absurd that you would think even reading it, you would say, even if you had no knowledge of of anything, you would say, you know, that, that can't possibly be true. And yet good friend of the pod, Justin Trudeau, the blockhead prime minister of Canada, uh, tweeted about this Newsweek article and said that Canada denounces, this was his tweet, Canada denounces the Iranian regime's barbaric decision to impose the death penalty on nearly 15,000 protesters. Uh, So this got some play then, as you might expect. Uh, Trudeau later had to delete the tweet because what is actually, uh, and Newsweek had to correct their story because what they actually uh, meant or should have said was that the Iranians have arrested uh, 15,000 people. That's believed to be the number of people they've arrested according to uh, overseas uh, human rights groups. There's a Kurdish rights group called Hengal that's been tracking this stuff. Uh, there's also a group called Iran Human Rights. Both of those are based in Norway. They've been tracking things. Uh, they, they estimate that the ar- number of arrests has been around 15,000. The Iranians have certainly, Iranian security forces have certainly killed a large number of people uh, as part of these protests. Uh, uh, Iran Human Rights estimated that it was at 326 uh, as of Saturday, and there have been several people killed uh, this week, just this week in in protests. Um, And so, I mean, you know, this isn't to like let Iran off the hook or anything. And they have sentenced, I think, five people so far uh, in these kind of. you know, dubious trials that they've been holding for the protesters. They've sentenced five people to execution, but that's a far cry, certainly from 15,000. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think it, I, I, I think it reflects the credulity with which you can, uh, you know, th- what you can get away with saying about a country like Iran that's identified as just a bad guy, axis of evil, whatever you want to call it. Um, y- you can pretty much apparently say anything, you know, talk about any level of abuse, even if it's, uh, so ridiculous that it couldn't possibly be true, and you will find somebody uh, willing to believe it, uh, even somebody who should be as uh, well-informed as the Prime Minister of Canada. 
it's really a wild story and it just reflects so much about the Western media and, you know, uh, and it's orientalizing, frankly, perspective, you know, to, 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 to deploy that term, I think in a, in an effective way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's also other, it's an othering. I mean, you know, look at these people, they're, they're, they're different. They'll, they'll kill 15,000 people at a pop and not worry about it. They're like literally barbaric, right. They don't care about human life, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you can say all these things and, and, you know, People will believe it because they just don't really think about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so why don't we now turn to the final issue, which is this whole missile fiasco. So Derek, could you maybe also take us through this whole fiasco? Because it, it's another uh, demonstration of why everyone needs to subscribe to American Prestige, the only podcast that tells it like it really is. <laughs> So, I mean, this is in the context, obviously, of the war in Ukraine, which uh, I will say there have been a couple of a uh, couple of developments. Um, just as prelim here, the the Russian military completed its withdrawal from much of uh, southern Ukraine's Kherson Oblast uh, on, uh, I believe, uh, Friday, uh, which was f- far ahead of of where people thought. I mean, there was some some thought that it would take days or even weeks for the Russians to actually complete that pullout. Uh, they completed it as of Friday. The Ukrainians moved in. They've occupied or retaken uh, Kherson city, um, and are kind of sifting through the damage. So that's, that's one major development, uh, certainly the, uh, another development, uh, that just happened today, Thursday, uh, a little bit before we, uh, started recording is that the Russians have apparently agreed to allow, uh, or to, to extend the Black Sea Grain Initiative, which has allowed food to be, uh, exported from Ukraine, uh, to parts of the world that desperately need it. Uh, they've agreed to extend that for another four months, uh, according to the UN. The UN had been looking for a, a one-year extension and maybe even to expand the scope of the agreement, but the Russians haven't been terribly happy with how it's been implemented so far. They don't feel like they're getting a fair shake for their own exports. So uh, just getting a simple four-month renewal is is uh, probably the best that could have been hoped for. Uh, now, on to the story that you're talking about, Danny, which is the missile that landed in a Polish border village. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name. I, 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 you know, people would be so mad at me. Uh, so uh, this was on Tuesday. Uh, a missile of some kind, a projectile of some kind, uh, landed in a Polish border, a, a village along the Polish-Ukrainian border, killed two people. And that was all anybody knew for most of the day on Tuesday. Uh, That did not stop the Associated Press from running a story based on an anonymous source in U.S. intelligence community that this was a Russian missile that had flown, you know, maybe accidentally, maybe deliberately, who knows, that had crossed the border, landed in in Poland, killed these two people, which, of course, raises all sorts of concerns about uh, NATO getting involved in the war, more involved in the war, about, you know, Article 5, the collective uh, self-defense function of NATO. Uh, The... uh, so, I mean, they, they ran with this with a single, what looks like a single anonymous source. Uh, it turned out, uh, turns out that what probably happened, and it's still not 100% clear, but what probably happened was that this was a Ukrainian S-300 air defense missile that was launched uh, in response to what it, it admittedly was the 
uh, probably the worst single day uh, Ukraine has suffered so far in the war in terms of aerial bombardment, in terms of the number of missiles Russia fired at, at various targets in Ukraine. Uh, so responding to that bombardment, uh, the Ukrainians fired, uh, I'm sure, a number of air defense missiles. One of them, it looks like, uh, went badly off course and, and uh, fell in this Polish village and killed these two people. Uh, that's based on analysis of the wreckage uh, from the missile. Uh, the Polish Polish authorities have said it looks like uh, an S-300 missile that was probably manufactured uh, by the Soviet Union. Now, people may be aware the Soviet Union has been around for a while, uh, but surplus Soviet missiles, uh, you know, the fact that it's a surplus Soviet missile makes it more likely, I think, to have been Ukrainian than Russian. Uh, the Russians are presumably manufacturing new S-300 missiles rather than relying on on very old stockpiles. Um, it is, it's still, I mean, there's still a little bit of chance here that this was something else. The Russian military does use the S-300. It's even used S-300s for ground-to-ground attacks because it's sort of run out of other things to shoot. Um, but I really think the, the preponderance of evidence here and the, uh, you know, the, most of the, the discussion has been, uh, around, uh, this being a, a Ukrainian missile. Uh, the only person who doesn't seem to believe that is Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, who's still insisting, uh, that it must have been, uh, fired by Russia. Uh, the AP, to get back to the media part of this, published a correction yesterday, Uh, I will read the correction in full. It says, in earlier versions of a story published November 15th, 2022, the Associated Press reported erroneously based on information from a senior American intelligence official who spoke on condition of anonymity that Russian missiles had crossed into Poland and killed two people. Subsequent reporting showed that the missiles were Russian-made and most likely fired by Ukraine in defense against a Russian attack. So that's quite a correction uh, to offer after panicking everybody the previous day. But... um, you know, that's that's uh, that's the media for you. That's why the only place to get news is American prestige. Derek Davison, king of the news, the news is lion tamer. Thank you so much for your knowledge. And we'll see you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.